0: Hey, everyone, this is Josh from Solopreneur Grind for episode 104 of the Solopreneur Grind podcast. I'm happy to be joined by Robbie Samuels. He is an author, speaker, and business growth strategy coach recognized as a networking expert by Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Lifehacker, and Inc.com. That is a really impressive list. Robbie, thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me here.
0: Awesome, Robbie. can you expand a little bit on that? Uh, I mean, it's a really good kind of like short, brief, choppy uh, intro, but for those of you who may not have heard uh, a little bit about who you are, you know, who are you and and what's the big focus uh, in terms of yourself, your life, your business right now?
1: So prior to the pandemic, I had spent about a decade uh, working to be known as a networking expert. And you see the results in that one sentence. Uh, I also published a book on that topic of networking and did a TEDx, launched a group coaching program the focus was really about helping people connect in person at conferences. And March, 2020, the things I knew how to do and the value I was bringing to the world wasn't needed. And I was trying to figure out how to show up and add value. Um, short answer is it led to me hosting a virtual happy hour on March 13, 2020, that became the No More Bad Zoom virtual happy hour. I'm still hosting it um, 20 months later, hmm. and that led to multiple new revenue streams. And within eight months, I had grown a thriving six figure business, um, from scratch essentially. Cause again, I had to start sort of over and then this year, um, now that was in 2020 and 2021, um, that's going still incredibly well. But then I went and wrote a book, my second book to answer the question, Robbie, how did you do that? And more importantly, to share how a reader could do it as well. And the focus of that book is how to build an audience before
0: you create your offer. Hmm, very cool. I mean, the interesting thing of what you said, Robbie, is like you were focused on networking in person pre-COVID and then COVID hits and obviously, you know, throws a world for a loop. But it's not like we don't still need to network, right? It's just the way that we go about that is is very different. And I'm excited to, to jump into all that because for many entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, you know, entrepreneurs, uh, we all know the value of networking. Can we talk about, so let's talk a little bit about pre-COVID because I've, I've run events in person before, not many, but enough and, and really enjoyed them and, and the value of networking. How did you get into that space to begin with? How, how did How did you become kind of that, you know, in-person networking type guy?
1: I was running my own events and was nurturing our regulars to help them Um, take on sort of a a co-host mentality Mm -hmm. so that the space would continue to be welcoming and friendly. And it was going really well. And I was documenting what we were doing for this group. And then I went and offered as a pro bono uh, for a local nonprofit. And then I was in nonprofit at the time. So I had a lot of connections in that space. So a bunch of pro bono talks in 2008 led to being paid in 2009 actually not to do that talk, <laughs> um, strangely enough. I was brought to DC to do a talk on fundraising, which was the area that I was uh, in at the time. And so for the next 10 years, I was doing that talk, um, getting to understand better about you know, why is it that we have these like great intentions when we go to events. In fact, there are these <clears throat> studies that 72% of people surveyed said that networking was a top driver for why they chose to attend an event. But we both know that the follow through of those intentions is actually really dismal. Um, and there's a lot of different reasons for it, but I was trying to help close the gap between intentions and follow through so that people could actually achieve great outcomes from all the effort they're putting into getting to this event. So I believe that events are about constant and connection. So when virtual events became synonymous with events, I really just came at it from the same question, how do we make now virtual events? Engaging a form of connection, and not just the you know webinar with 45 minutes of death by PowerPoint followed by ineffectual Q and A and now no one moderating chat, which was right. never a good format, but particularly not now when we we desperately need to talk to people that we're not in charge of feeding. So um, it, it really was at that angle. I wasn't trying to become uh, an executive Zoom producer or a virtual event design consultant um, or anything like that. It was just like, how do I show up and help people make this connection?
0: Right, and can we even take a step, like what's the step before that to running those events? Like what, what type of events were you running? How did you get into that role? Because I think that's something too that a lot of people are interested in as well. Yes, you know, attending events, networking and stuff like that. But uh, even just being able to, to put on, run, host those types of events too gets, gets a lot of curiosity.
1: Well, I was running a meetup group at that, that particular time. Um, but prior to that, in my 20s, I ran a group um, That was a a social justice gathering, Um, and you know, pre, this is all pre Meetup, pre Facebook, pre everything, Uh, and then so this latest iteration, that was uh, that was something again, social justice based. It was Boston, um, Massachusetts area, and we hosted two events a month. And a year in, we looked at who were our regulars. We brought them out for coffee, and we had a conversation with them about. How welcoming the event had been and how you know how they why do they keep coming back. And what turned out is that a lot of the people in the room were actually shy and are introverted. And so um, for us, us to sustain the group, we knew that we needed to have their support because a lot of groups become very clicky and very like in in crowd. Mm-hmm. And we wanted this to continue to be a group that welcomed new people for it to be continuing to be thriving. And we wanted the regulars to have a sense of purpose. So I think one of the things that made that group very successful, it ran for 11 years. We, we hosted hmm. hundreds of events through um, to thousands of members, was that we had that, like, you know, we're all in this together creating a space. So if you attended three events in a short enough amount of time that we remembered you, <clears throat> we would pull you aside and we would sort of uh, anoint you <laughs> as a regular. And we had a name for them and, you know, really just kind of invited them to extra events throughout the year to strategy sessions and like just really involving them in the process of what is this group and where is it going and i think all of us could take a cue from that about how we run whatever we're running i also do a lot of dinners i've done a dinner series um so i would say for anyone who's interested in getting started start simply and small Um, gather a few people around a topic and you know make sure everyone feels heard and welcomed and uh, see where it goes from there you don't have to commit to it being a series or a monthly practice or anything um, a, even a one-time thing. And for me, a lot of that has been actually at conferences. Um, I, do, I do this so often, Josh, that there was a conference coming to where I lived when I was living in Boston. I wasn't planning to attend. I knew friends that were flying in to speak. I hosted two dinners. Um, through the process of setting up those dinners, I got a ticket to the event. Mm-hmm. Second year, that happened again. <laughs> <laughs> again, I hosted two dinners. I got a ticket to the event. Um, so you know to me it's like how do you convene and gather people in a meaningful way and now we have virtual as another way of doing that so nowadays if i were to say to someone hey get started hosting i wouldn't say necessarily do it local if you have a network that's global or if you have a network that spans beyond your local community think about how you might do something virtually but know that there are some best practices about how to facilitate online that would make that a better experience like you don't have to think about right. who goes next in person because it's whoever's next to you. <laughs> right. Like, you know, it's coming around the table to you and you know it's your turn. And that's an example of online. That's not how people experience that moment. And it, that level of confusion is part of why people, I think, get a little burnt out or Zoom fatigue from being online. It's like not well run, not well facilitated, not well thought out, um, not enough engagement, not a good use of the technology itself, which is the part that I was really. I was really motivated to figure out how to learn the technology in order to create the experience. Um, And then it turned out that a lot of people needed that.
0: Right, yeah, and I I wanna dig into that for sure because as most of us, like I've, you know, not been shy to many online uh, meetups and webinars and and stuff that you said. I wanna stick to the in-person stuff for a little bit now. I'm mostly curious, Robbie, about, so your events start growing and you start getting these paid speaking opportunities. How did this kind of like turn into a business for you? Like, was this uh, kind of like an overnight, hey, paid gigs, now I have a business? Um, At what point were you like whipping up products or even figuring out how to charge people? All right, so
1: I was still employed for five years while I had this like side hustle speaking. And that to me is part of the secret, right? Like, don't just quit your day job until you've got something calling you. My mentor, Dory Clark, said it best, you'll know when to quit your job when it gets in the way of your business.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: So um, that was really helpful because I did reach that point. Uh, But I had a lot of vacation hours. And so I was able to like if if I was doing something on the other side of the state, I could take a day and go there and back in the the middle of the work week and all that. So I was I was using my vacation hours to go do speaking gigs. I was doing three or four a month. So it was pretty steady, not high paying. I was mostly speaking to the nonprofits. I made it big when I got hired by um uh uh fundraising um like foundations and stuff but the first time i got paid like i said it was it it was flown to dc for my fundraising topic not a topic i'd ever done before it was the work i was doing but someone said i know you're a fundraiser i know you teach networking will you help my board of directors be better at fundraising and i said yes (laughs) and then went to google to be like "Uh." so that one i um, They were willing to pay me $200 and pay my flight. And then I had to stay with my friend, like talk Mm -hmm. about, you know, not really being paid. (laughs) I billed them $400 and I, and I, on the invoice, I gave them a 50% referral discount. And then I spent a year telling people that I charged $400 for a talk and um, got paid everything from a handshake and a gift card to a couple hundred bucks a year in, someone said, okay, with no hesitation. And from that point on, I said, 600. And within three months, someone paid 600. And then I said 800. And then again, within three months, four months. So I got stuck at $1,000 mentally. Um, I was at $1,000 for a while, because I didn't think, I I was getting yeses at $1,000, and I wasn't asking for more. And then I went from 12 to 15 to 3,000 in about uh, eight months. (laughs) Like once I got past it, I got past it really quick. Um, And it was around that time that I, I now was five years in. And I left, and the thing was, I wanted a different audience. So I leave this. This I've built up this reputation. I have all this material, but I don't want to be speaking to nonprofits. So that was 2015, and the first thing I ended up doing was actually hosting a podcast. So now I've had this show now for five and a half years, and that was because I fell in love with Pat Flynn's Smart Passive Income, and after listening to tons of his shows, I learned the just in time versus just in case way of thinking. Um, which was a tip he learned from Jason Van Orden and I realized that I wasn't going to make progress if I just kept listening to the show and getting excited by every you know shiny object he talked about so I doubled down on a show and that led to a book and meanwhile I'm still doing the talks I'm, I'm slowly finding my way into a new audience and then from the from that first book I was able to launch my group coaching program in my second book I wrote about trials and tribulations of doing that um, piloting it, trying to discovering my ideal client in the process. And I started working on another book right after, but shelved it. and then three years later, this year, picked it up, brushed it off, added this specific you know detailed how to's, and launched it. Um, in the meantime, I am a person who knows everything there is to know about behind the scenes of running a business. I just wasn't focusing on revenue for many years. I was learning like launch podcasts, launch books. Um, pilot, you know, I was learning how to do all these things and coaching people. And so I was getting an opportunity to do a lot of coaching, both private and working through a company. I was coaching all these entrepreneurs. So when the pandemic hit, I started to get inquiries about zoom because I was doing this virtual happy hour for free. Mm -hmm. And within like within a few weeks, like my, my calendar was going to be full of just inquiries about pick your brain and coffee chats. And I thought I could just do this the rest of the year. and my extrovert brain would be very happy (laughs) to do this, but I would never coach one of my current clients who are going through the same like tumultuous moment to just fill their calendar with random coffee chats. And I was like, I would tell them to treat them as as research calls. And that's kind of what I like. That is what I did. I I said, okay, what would I do as a client? So I'm really grateful because I feel like a lot of my success last year, I would have missed if I didn't have the experience at the same time of being a business growth strategist and working with entrepreneurs and having that lens of like having to coach someone else through this like big shift. Um, Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the stuff I did prior to that, I wasn't, I wasn't revenue first. I was, I was, I was about learning the craft, but now I have like, you know, five years as a side hustle and five years on my own. And I'm like, it's, it's time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, My, my wife really carried us for many of those years. And we were at the point where, you know, another income, steady income would be great. Um, And then it all just it all took place so quickly, like uh, really the answer to how you figure out how to find people is like people were coming to me and I was
0: thinking about who I could best serve and having conversations with them. Got it. Yeah, no. And and I feel like there's a lot of little lessons uh, just just from that little piece that you that you mentioned. How do you recommend, Robbie, to other people who kind of like you alluded to earlier on we're, we're you know, the shiny object syndrome. They're maybe consuming a lot of content or just have a lot of ideas or having a lot of conversations, but not really narrowing down on one thing or, or kind of like you said, focusing on revenue, uh, which is not the worst thing, right, Robbie? Like like uh, to, to focus on learning, learning your craft and, and, and doing research and, and then narrowing down on what might be the best opportunity but what would you recommend
1: back your successes if you have five things and you're trying to move each forward one inch at a time end of the year you're not going to have made enough progress to know whether any of them are actually working so you're going to have to be disciplined enough to put some of them further down the year and so in my book i talk my second book small list big results i talk about um the difference to me between quarterly goal setting which is what i was building my business using and now i do 12 week sprints I know on the surface they sound like the exact same thing. The difference is that in between 12-week sprints, there are these four weeks where I'm very clear on the other activities I'm gonna be focusing on, like um, reflect and assess like, what happened in the last 12 weeks. Have, you know It's not like the whole week I'm doing that, but like during I'm wrapping up the things from, the, from that last 12 weeks and I'm having that moment of reflection. The second week I'm taking some time off to relax and rejuvenate. Um, it could be a week, it could be an afternoon, depending on kind of where I am in my cycle. Uh, the third week is learning things that like I put aside because it wasn't just in time, it was just in case learning. And I want to still watch those replays, listen to those podcasts. And then the fourth week is doing strategy to figure out what my 12, my 12 week sprint goals were going to be for the next, uh, sprint. And I like to have a couple of major and a couple of minor goals. So the minor goals set me up for success later on in the year. So if I know I'm going to, like, I knew I was going to relaunch my website at the beginning of this year. So last year I was gathering content. I was getting photos. I was, you know, thinking about what would be included and what wouldn't look, you know, I was sort of, I was sort of doing a lot of the behind the scenes piece, but I wasn't hiring anyone. I wasn't getting lost in design questions and font questions and color questions. Cause none of that was, I wasn't there yet. Mm-hmm. But by the time I was there, I had all the materials and I just needed to find someone who can help me pull it together and like create the right look. So I think like knowing what are your makers or focuses and then Creating the strategy to get to them. And what's nice about a 12 week period is it's enough time to get traction. And if you don't get traction, you should probably think of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like rather than saying, like, this year I'd like to, and then you kind of half ass it and don't work on it, you don't know at the end of the year whether it was the wrong strategy, wrong goal, or not enough effort. But in 12 weeks, if you really know you put the effort in, then you can really ask yourself those questions and make calibrations. But then when you're planning the future sprints, you're building your success of what did happen, not what you hoped would happen, but what did happen and then you do the next thing. The order of operations, there's no finite rule here, but you could write a book and then do a program or create a program and then write a book. You know, like Mm -hmm. these things, but they should work in tandem. Like nothing you do, like if you got a book coming out, it shouldn't be like a one-off. It should be your book, which then leads to something. Right. Um, Bigger stages. A new offer, like you know, a B two B, like it's some like the book, because then that's how you build your audience. The book should then be the audience that you'd be nurturing for whatever comes next. I think too often when we have these disparate ideas, these shiny objects, there's nothing that holds them together, and the same amount of energy to, to do that than it is to like just kind of kind of pick things and work them in some sort of sequential order.
0: Absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. I, I like that period of time. As you said, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. So, Robbie, I, I want to get into virtual stuff. But before that, I, I'd love to talk more about in-person events because, number one, very interesting to me. And number two, I you know, one day we'll go back to in-person events being what they used to be, I hope. God knows when. But um, can you talk about what was it that you were doing or your types of events that made them that much more effective or or more engaging? Because we've all been to bad ones, right? What are so if you were still running them today, or if you were to talk to someone and advise them on what, you know, what are some of the keys? There's probably a lot, maybe like the top two, three, four keys to a, a successful in person event.
1: Well, I have to say they also applied
0: it to online. Um, well, that's why you know, I'm interested to see the, the, the comparison yeah. and contrast. Uh, a,
1: lot, a lot of things are similar, and I think um, in person one of the things I would say for people attending events is to be more selective about which events you attend and have a greater sense of purpose for why you're going. So mm-hmm. one of the things I suggest for people who are going to events, whatever the format, to be clear on that, and, and one tactic is to write your follow-up email before you go to the event. Hmm. You're not sending it. <laughs> follow-up
0: email to the event host or
1: to whoever you think you would like to meet uh, so really getting clear on who like you know it really makes that one activity makes you really stop and go why am i going who would i want to meet well who's going to be there well maybe i should go look to see who the sponsors are or the attendees are or the, right and then you're like oh if i met these three people this is what i want to talk to them about well then you write your follow-up email as if you had met them And just doing that planning moment, this is a lot of what I was working with organizers around is how do you help your participants have that planning moment before they come to your event so they come Hmm. with a greater sense of purpose so that they are more likely to have serendipity, right? Serendipity will happen more frequently if you know what you're looking for. So that is I would say that 60 percent of the responsibility of whether or not you achieve your goals networking are on the participant themselves. Like Hmm. a lot of participants just show, show like like logistically, they get there, you know, hotel, flight, but they like, they they're suddenly in Cleveland, and they they're like, oh right, what is this now? So, I think that little extra foresight, and so some of the things we would do is a series of emails leading up. Um, we would do a like a, a back then it was like a webinar. Now I would say like a kickoff uh, social, um, like a, an actual Zoom meeting um, would be great. Like I think in tandem, I, I think going forward we're not gonna. Have very many like strictly only in-person events. I think we're going to find it maybe during the, those three days it'll be strictly in-person, but I think we're going to find more like virtual gatherings leading up to and following, which is mm-hmm. part of the continuity that makes those events even you know a better experience for everyone. Um, even little things in an, in an email just to remind people like six weeks earlier to like buy their you know replenish their business cards, you know like mm-hmm. like little things like that. Um, we would have checklists for like what's a pack and don't forget this. And have you thought about this question? You know, um, you, you know, we would we would prompt questions even in the registration form. Um, uh, it, like I used to do see these on name tags too, um, asking about and I'm looking for. So we would ask that on the registration. We'd also give hmm. them stickers to wear at the event. Um, I did the, everything from first timers orientations, but I also did like morning kickoffs. So that we would do like different topics in the morning, and this is before the sessions. So you know, very select, you know, not everyone would come, but you'd have some people who would come and those are the people who really want to connect. So you just give them a reason to, I also ran a solo reception for people who were traveling by themselves from an organization regardless Hmm. of whether it was a first time or 10th time. And then we would do activities to help them meet each other. And then we would end our hour long program while another reception was happening. So they would then go together to the general reception. Hmm. And then they would spend all weekend hanging out and catching up and having lunch and getting coffee and getting drinks. And like, that already makes their experience better having some a conference buddy. Um, the other thing, I, I, my new talk that I never got to launch because COVID happened was about the second year experience. We focus a lot on the year one; everyone coming is going to be overwhelmed. So we put a lot, of, a lot in place, which is great. You know, we might have like a first timer type ribbon or identifier. Um, we might have a first timers orientation or something that really helps these people. But the year two isn't that much easier. <laughs> Um, you That's still don't true. know that many people, you're still feeling really overwhelmed. Um, now you probably spent more money because now it's you know, maybe the first time it was local to you and now you flew somewhere, so you've invested more. But right. at the end of this year two, if you don't feel like you made any connections, you didn't like find your people, um, regardless of the content, you may not bother to come back year three. And if you come back year three, I feel like now you're kind of in it. And if you come back year five, this is something you start planning around. And by year five, year seven, you have to volunteer to be on the committees and the you know, right? Like Like, then you get on the board by year 10, right? Like, so Mm -hmm. so I think getting people from years one to three is critical. And I think year two is where we could spend more time doing buddy systems or mentoring systems, or, you know, how do you help people from year to one year two? like, you know, send them special messages throughout the year, give them a reason to hang out with each other. Like now again, virtual would be so great for this. They get like all the people who came by the, the first time, have them continue to connect so that when they come back, they have, they actually have people that they Mm -hmm. can look forward to and make lunch plans with. So I think everyone assumes that they're going to have like an awkward time that first year, but they actually think the second year is going to go so much better and it doesn't. And then they feel actually bad about it, where, you know, Mm -hmm. they don't feel bad about being a little out of the loop on the first one. But by year two, it's a little like I should, this should not be this hard, but it is hard. So I think as an organization, like paying attention to those trends and the, the, the gap, you know, like there's, there's this we um, re- lose the re- retention loss, um, you know, between years one and three, like noticing that and trying to find those remedies.
0: Got it. That's really good advice. What, what about like a, a more casual monthly meetup? Uh, any specific tips for for that? Is it similar just shrunken from years to, to months? And or the other thing okay. I was curious about is, let's say you're hosting a monthly two hour networking event for, you know, insert niche here, right? I don't know, pet owners or e-commerce professionals, whatever. What, any tips for like how to like the logistics of, of running the event itself to make it the, uh, the, the biggest success, hopefully?
1: So um, one, one of it's actually something you may not have control about. Have the bar as far into the room as possible. Okay. Because people are going to go there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, So if it's by the front, they will gather there and not venture further. Uh, So if you have the ability to structure a room, um, if you can't move the bar, put the food and uh, putting out a little something is not Mm -hmm. a bad idea. Putting that further into the room is helpful. Um, We're we're pretty basic
0: creatures, eh, humans? Food, drink. uh...
1: (laughs) Well, it's what we know how to do, right? Right. We get in line, we do those things. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is where uh, we, there's both like the the skill building you can do with your regulars and your you know, co-hosts but what we did uh, for this this meetup people would come and they had to come downstairs into a door through a doorway and then into this big room that had a bar like actually in the middle full full length almost of the room so as they came down the stairs there'd be someone standing in the doorway telling them that hey welcome welcome in a moment you're going to be signing in, and here, you know, we're going to have you do this, this, and this. So they were being welcomed by someone at the at door. So as they were coming down the stairs, even they'd be like three, four people at a time. Then there was a person behind that table that was facing the door, had them signing in. We always did a little raffle thing. You pay for the money, blah, blah, blah. and then you would um, turn and immediately be greeted by someone who would hand you an icebreaker bingo sheet hmm. and a pen. That became eventually a branded pen (laughs) where those pens went everywhere and they would say let me start you off with one i am and they would sign one of the things and then this person that was gripping their pen got their name tag on they've got the sheet they turn three more steps and they're at a table where there's two people very chatty very engaging saying hey we've got asking about and i'm looking for stickers um here and here's a bunch of suggestions on these sheets what, what do you want? What do you want to look for? Like, tell, talk to us and we we'll can help you think about who's in the room. And maybe we can make a quick introduction for you. Two thirds mm-hmm. of the people could walk right by that. Right. The one third that puts those on that change the dynamics, of the room right there. And then right. some of the people who walked by go, wait a second, turn around and go, I'm looking for an intern. And they're like, <laughs> great, put that on. You know, like they're like, wait, all these people are doing that. Like that's act- like people are actually having conversations that are meaningful. And then the icebreaker bingo sheet was great because uh 25 squares so gave people a reason to walk around the room it's really uh, give people an excuse to both enter and exit even more importantly a a conversation Mm -hmm. um and then layering all that there was less than 10 percent of the room were regulars that we had really coached around um a best practice one of them is that they couldn't hang out with each other during the first half hour so during the first half hour Mm -hmm. they couldn't just congregate um, that first half hour, they had to be on. And they, we asked them to come 15 minutes early as well. So they were there for when new people always arrived nervous and like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be here. So while I was doing my finishing touches with last minute things, there were always a few regulars hanging out, but for the first 30 minutes, of the actual program, instead of all catching up with each other, they kept an eye out for people who were new. They, they, they signed people's bingo sheets. They made introductions, and they didn't have to know everybody else in the room, but all they, we could identify which were regulars by what they were a little thing they had on. And so they could introduce them to another regular, if nothing Hmm. else. So they, they didn't have to know everybody. They just had, and they didn't have to know that regular. They literally could just be like, "Oh, let me introduce you to this is Bob. Bob's also one of our regular." Like, and so it it gave them something to do. And one of the things I discovered is it helped with the retention of our regulars. It gave the regulars a role and a responsibility to help others feel more welcomed. And a lot of the people who were coming were shy and introverted, so they were like, "Wow, I feel better than these people actually." I can do this and it was a real leadership skill. So that's like sort of more structured stuff. Mm-hmm. Um and then we didn't like interrupt the call like to do like a, you know, we it was mostly social, but we would do like a quick program but not until like halfway through. Um right. so not to like interrupt that. And when I would call out, hey, where are our regulars? They were spread throughout the entire room and that was to me, you know, a testament that this is working.
0: Yeah, it it really sounds to me, Robbie, that a lot of these tips and prep is like so front-loaded. Meaning, if if you like do really really good prep work in the time leading up to the event, and then like the first three minutes of your guests walking in the door, right. if you crush all of that, it's almost sounds to me. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Like the rest can be whatever. Obviously, don't crap the bed on the on the rest of the stuff. But it's. I mean. Like, is that what we're yeah. getting at here? Like, is that the 80-20? If, if you get it, is. yeah,
1: it is the 80-20 because people come guarded. And if they are welcomed, very like, sincerely welcomed. What I love about this is that there's always gonna be some people who really need to be welcomed. And it's usually like demographic outliers, right? Like older, younger people of color in a mostly white room. It could also be people who are just like, you know, socially awkward. Um, of any age and creed, but, um, those people really need to feel like they belong there Mm -hmm. by normalizing the effort to welcome everybody, you're definitely going to welcome those people, but it won't be like, like I've heard of, um, I worked with a unitarian universalist association on their, um, welcoming practices at one point, and they have a like five person welcome committee every week and it rotates. Um, The problem is that they're not all there at the same time. Some of them are busy setting up the coffee, the newcomer comes in, and if those five people don't see them, what's happening with the other 95 people in the room? Those Mm -hmm. other 95 people are ignoring them because it's not their job that week to be on the welcome committee. And I'm like, there's no welcome committee. Like once you've gone three times, you're in charge of welcoming the next person who walks in the door. And Hmm. so it it just limits the like, problem of, well, someone showed up, circled the room, no one talked to them, so they left. And I've, by the way, been on the side of how do we get more blank people into this room? Young people, people of color generally, right? And you can put a lot of effort into promoting, into advertising, into getting into the right spaces and then they show up, whoever the day is, again, cert- sign in, circle the room, no one talks to them, they leave. And then it's a conversation about retention and honestly, retention's baked in if you welcome people. And if after three times you recognize they've been there and you kind of ask them to help continue that culture, it, right. it gets that into the, how the organization runs. I don't have to be the only one paying attention. I don't have to be the only one worrying about people as they come in. And really, really shy people who are, who are regulars start to take ownership of other people's experiences and it actually is helping them bring more of themselves into the room, which I thought was a fascinating byproduct as a person who has never been mistaken for shy.
0: Right, right. Very cool. And, and it's great to hear because I think probably a lot of people want to run events more than the amount of people that actually end up running events. And it, it might be because it can be intimidating. It can be confusing. It could sound like a lot of prep. Cool. Um, yeah.
1: I just want to say that like in my first book, Croissants versus Bagels, Strategic, Effective, and Inclusive Networking at Conferences, I write about a concept that I was teaching for many years, croissants and bagels. So this is actually one of those key takeaways that people couldn't forget which is why i had not turned into a book bagels are those tight clusters of people those shoulder to shoulder huddles that are impossible to break into right you walk in a room and you're like i don't everyone's just standing in these tight little clusters and where do i go the croissant is when someone in that group shifts their body language to make space for others to join hmm. and i would literally teach people how to stand with their feet positioned So that they had that more open body language, whether they were sitting with one person, two people, or five. Hmm. And what's great about this idea is that it's about your body language matching your intentions. So first you have to have clarity that you are there to meet people and then you need your body to make that possible. And then, you know, but one actually sort of leads to the other. Sometimes people would come in, you know, from a busy day, and then they would realize, Oh, wait, I need to stand more open. Oh, right, I'm here to meet people. And then they would sort of follow through on that. So by teaching that skill to just a small percentage of people in the room, that was part of the ripple effect. Hmm. And then other people would naturally be more open, would naturally right. be more welcoming because they felt like they had been greeted and engaged. Um, hmm. I also have been places where everyone's all like, about newcomers, <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Like not to be bothered, you know, I've got my friends. And mm-hmm. so everyone everyone walks around with their like, you know, just the shoulders up, like all guarded. And it's really, really hard to like break into conversations in those spaces. And I've seen those same people in different locations. It's about the location. It's not about the person.
0: Hmm. Very like it's just something I would never think of. Haven't gone to dozens of events. Uh, the, the bagel versus croissant is, is great. I'll probably never forget that. So, Robbie, let, let's spend the last few minutes talking about virtual, right? Uh, it's been a huge shift in the last few years. Can take, considering everything we just talked about, how similar, dissimilar is that to, to what you're focused on now with virtual events? Uh, and or maybe a couple tips on um, how to do all of that successfully virtually or how you've helped your clients successfully transition from in-person in to virtual?
1: Well, something to recall about virtual is that we shouldn't be just replicating what we did in person. I think that was the first instinct that a lot of people had. Mm-hmm. And what we're, we're forgetting is that in-person had constraints. Now we didn't recognize those constraints because it was just like life. But the fact that people had to fly to one location and spend three days in this one location is a constraint. And I've been to conferences where because that was true, there'd be 20, 40 concurrent breakout sessions and no one's gonna tell me that that's a good idea. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But that was a lived reality and no one questioned it. You don't wanna take that same event online and then mirror it and say, okay, it's gonna be three days with 42 concurrent sessions. Mm -hmm. You can instead take that content and spread it out over a year, over six months, over three months and nurture and grow a community in a different way, because you don't all have to be in that one location. Hmm. I would really like people to reimagine and to start with the question of what is the outcome we're trying to achieve? Like be really purpose first in your design of an event. Don't just add bells and whistles because you now know that you have bells and whistles. Use the technology intentionally to create a certain outcome, which by the way, We all should be doing in person as well. It's just that in person, once everyone flies there, something's going to (laughs) happen and it's going to be what it is. I think that when it's online, we really have to be intentional because people can turn us off instantly. Right. Once everyone's flown to Chicago, you're going to have a three day event and they're going to stay there. Right. Even if you don't do a great job of creating engagement. But if that same event's happening online, they could multitask and ignore you. They could just turn it off they can right. walk away. Um, they can, they can change the channel essentially. So yeah. I think getting clarity about what that is and then designing with that in mind and really leveraging, I, I try to use a suite of both digital tools and also analog tools. So what do you ship to people ahead of time to help them really kind of experiences as an event? Um, what are you giving them to hold up? You know, one of my favorite mm. sponsor packages included um, a light bulb and it had the word this, And you were just to hold it up whenever someone said something that was like a light bulb moment. Right. Like (laughs) a this moment and on the back, it had information about how to download um, a freebie to help you get writing ideas for your newsletter. Wow. (laughs) I mean, that's clever. Beautiful. It was so beautiful. It was like this. And then you'd be like, I could write about this. (laughs) This is an example of like you know, like that is a great. It's an analog tool that people can play with. I've done things where you have to hold instead of people like hitting the thumbs up, you know, giving them things to hold up that represents those icons, um, mm. that's analog. And then there's the knowing enough about how to use the platform you choose. Like I'm, I am pretty zoom specific, but whatever platform you're using that you don't give erroneous instructions. So an example would be go ahead and raise your hand in chat. Okay, raise hand has never been in chat for Zoom. Mm -hmm. And people go and look because they don't know better and they get very confused. And of course it never gets corrected on air. So now people who didn't participate because they didn't know where the hand raising was. Um, Or, you know, someone's speaking when they're done, just saying, all right, folks, if you have something to say, go ahead and unmute. In person, you would never say, go ahead and just start talking, right? You would queue up, you would have people raise their hand, you'd have people writing things on a note card. So similarly, like having structure around, How are you going to bring voices in? Are you going to, how are you going to collect questions? How are you going to just like, I think that one of the things that I've learned is that the in-person requires more thought and structure to create a great experience, but once you have that in place, it works so seamlessly that no one recognizes that they're even having that structure. Hmm. Like like the community just learns, oh, when I write a question in chat, I always write the word question in all caps first, and that way people will see my question and later during Q and A, they're going to say my name to get my attention. And then they're going to tell me the answer. And if I Mm. ask, ask a question that's hyper-specific, they told me they're going to not ask that question, but they're going to follow up with folks later. And I now know that because that's the norm. Like, I think one of the things by working with the same clients over and over is that we've created norms for the communities that they, they serve. And those it's becoming easier and easier each time because there's fewer new people to have to explain the norms to. So people just kind of get it and you have fewer interruptions and fewer random like, sidebars. And um, I don't know, like my role is a little bit of an MC, a little bit of facilitator or moderator. I'm producing, I'm playing music, I'm, I'm adding levity, I'm handling tech, whatever they need me to do. But really it's about like planning ahead of time. You know, you're talking about 80, 20 earlier. So much of this is about decisions we make beforehand. Mm-hmm. And then that 20% is how do you handle it in the moment when it doesn't quite go as planned? <laughs> Right. Um, how do you keep things kind of just being smooth? And that's the common chaos piece that people hire me for. Because my promise is that you're going to have, you know, less stress and greater participant engagement, right? Because your team doesn't want to be in charge of this. That's not why you hired your team. So mm-hmm. um, it's, it's been so much fun to help people realize that they can have great connections, that um, No More bad Zoom virtual happy hour has been going, you know, every Friday at 5 o'clock Eastern, um, com ever, ever since March 13th, 2020. It's an example of a great community. People come, newcomers come, they get welcomed in. Like a lot of the things we talked about earlier, like, right? How do your regulars not be clicky? And honestly, it's easier online to avoid that because you're gonna randomly send people to breakout rooms. Mm-hmm. It's not like right. all the cool kids go to one side of the room. That's not gonna happen. Um, but I think the mistake I've seen online is when the people sometimes hire me, or they not hire me, but they have like a, an interest call and they're like, okay, we wanna do this thing. And it's, uh, and so, yeah, we're, we were thinking of, oh, it's gonna be a webinar, but we're gonna like turn off chat and uh, no one's gonna be able to see the questions being asked. And we're gonna write the questions ourselves ahead of time. And I'm like, why not just pre record this and put it on YouTube? Mm-hmm. They're like, why? I'm like, because you're not involved, it's not live. Like, it's live, but there's nothing live about it. <laughs> like, right? If there's nothing live about it, then why have everyone show up at a specific time? Why not just share the link? You know? Like, yeah. And I'm like, when people come to your in-person events, do you put a bag over their head and like a muzzle? <laughs> they're like, no. I'm like, well, then what are you afraid of? And what they're afraid of is losing control, right? right? They're afraid of it of going off the rails. And I'm like, that's, that's strategy. and That's facilitation skills. And that's like decisions made about how we're gonna use the technology. And that's hiring professionals. Because in person, you hire professionals to manage your AV and manage your MCing and your catering. I cost less than coffee is what I tell people. Right. The amount of money you would pay for coffee, I mean, I'm less than that. Right. So, um, I don't think people will do as well if they just wing it, and I don't think they'll do as well if they think they don't spend any money on it. Right. Um, I mean, just yeah, like I'm anything, right? Yeah.
0: Just like yeah. just like most things, not always, but you usually get what you pay for, right? Uh, you in get what life, you pay for. one way or another. Awesome, Robbie. My my last question about that is. Um, Where do you see events going in in the future as we obviously there's a big question mark about you know how long and how badly will COVID affect the world and it will probably affect different countries in different ways but maybe like if we're kind of generalizing North America let's say we start trending into going back to normal in quotations for those that are listening. What do you see happening with events over the next three to five years? Are we going to trend slowly back to in person? Do you think it might always be? You know, are we going to see a combo? Are we going to stick? Is virtual going to be more popular than ever, even when we do go back to normal? What are your thoughts with that?
1: I had said prior to the pandemic that I thought that in person was going to be um, of, of greater value for the organizations that were able to to show the need for actually gathering in person, the ones that actually provided engagement opportunities that actually led to real connections and real business, um, those people would start to gravitate. So I still think that's true. I think that there's like nothing that replaces the in-person. Now, that said, I think there's a ton of evidence that a lot of the things that were happening in person could happen online with with equal or sometimes even better outcomes. Mm-hmm. And that includes people I know who used to travel up and down California doing sales calls hmm. as a big state. And now they don't like, they don't spend three hours to drive for an hour and a half meeting and then drive home right. that, an entire day for an hour and a half meeting. Like that sounds just ludicrous right now. And they're finding that that's still working. Like, like sales calls can be done virtually. So, mm-hmm. um, there's regional meetings. You know, there's there's a whole kinds of ways that we're not needing people to get in a car for three hours, basically. Right. Now, for large gatherings, I think it's probably going to be a, a hybrid mix of some kind, which may include actually having two ways of accessing the content during the three days of the event. Um, the difference is that before, when they would have a virtual pass, it was a camera in the back of the stage, uh, back of the room, pointed at the stage. That was your virtual pass, everybody, $99. Um, (laughs) That's not going to cut it. It's now going to have to be an online experience that includes virtual breakout rooms of some kind, someone facilitating the online experience, someone making sure the questions from online get to the stage and get asked on air and vice versa, like the feedback from in person is coming up to the people on air. Um, I think it's hard. I don't think it's a simple process and anyone who's not yet made an effort to really transform the virtual is going to be behind the people mm-hmm. who have worked real hard at getting a great virtual experience. it's still going to be hard, but for them, it will be um, a lot of a, a lot simpler because they've worked out some of the kinks. Now, it also can be virtual in the sense I mentioned earlier, where maybe there's some virtual gatherings before and after an in-person um, hmm. and not everyone goes to the in-person, right? That in-person, it might be a, ser- a small percentage of people. But that you can still create a six-week experience, and there's a there's a moment somewhere in there that is that is live and in person, that doesn't have a virtual, um, maybe just a replay option. So you don't have that's a little less difficult because you don't have to work out the technology in those in-person moments for gathering people online at the same time. But you're still inviting a wider sway uh, swath of people to to the community and to engage. Uh, some of the experience my clients have had is that they're seeing more people from each organization come to the event. So before right. an event m- might have one person, but what's hard is when new ideas get only learned by one person an or organization, it's really hard to bring them back and enact on them. And if you get two or three people and they continue the conversation, when they go back to the office, it's much more likely that the, the new information is going to be woven into the fabric of what's already happening. So I actually think that the outcomes can be br- amazing. Like, when you create these spaces and are intentional about them um, we just have to be open to to the possibility of that
0: right yeah it may, it makes sense to me i guess we'll we'll see but that that absolutely makes sense to me robby this has been really great learning learned a ton on a variety of you know different aspects of events and just Little like the coffee and bagel stuff, just things, you know, someone like myself would would have never thought about. So really, really interesting. My last question that I like to ask most guests is if you put more of the, you know, entrepreneurial hat on, we have a listener, they're working a nine to five, they're not happy, or maybe they're just starting up a side hustle or or a new company, they're struggling, you know, they're going through the grind. What are one or two pieces of advice that that you would give to them to uh, to hopefully have the most success going forward?
1: So I'm laughing because this is basically what my second book is all about. So, okay, uh, perfect. uh go buy small list, big results, launch a successful offer, no matter the size of your email list. And when you do so, you'll get access to a toolkit and the toolkit, uh, includes, um, like a step-by-step workbooks for how to, you know, follow through on some of these strategies, but really namely, Josh, it comes down to building an audience before you create your offer. Too many of us get a great idea. Like a person says, I have trouble sleeping. And you're like, I've got something for that. Listen, you don't know enough about <laughs> what's wrong to even know if it's a problem. Right. Uh, you know, you've invented it to be a problem. You don't know if it's urgent. You don't know how it's impacting their life. You don't know what's causing it. You don't know what they're trying to solve for it. Um, you don't know if they're even trying to solve for it. You know, like, but in our mind, we're like, ooh, problem, solution. And then you try to sell it and then no one cares. So to avoid that, um, really spending some time understanding who you're, you know, who your ideal and likely prospects are um, talking to them. I have a whole step-by-step process about how to wake up your network and have those conversations and how to have those conversations, how to analyze the problem language. And I think for someone who has not yet developed their offer, it's even better for them to go through this process. Why should you bang your head on something for a year and a half to three years and not have it work? So better for you to really look around at who's already coming to you for advice, support and services and then how do you take that and have conversations figure like, what do they actually need help with? And I could serve them in this way and then pilot it with them. And that is true, whether it's a, a, um, a group offer, like a, a class or a group coaching program, whether it's one to one you're looking for, whether it's B2B, B2C, B2E, it will work to just lean into your existing network, discover likely prospects who already know, like, and trust you, and then co-create the offer with them. At the same time you're coming across likely referral partners, fellow experts, who can help you understand the landscape a little bit? Figure out where the holes are in the landscape. Figure out who your referral partners are. You shouldn't say yes to everything. You know who you're going to introduce to someone else. Instead, that would be my wish, honestly, for anyone who's just getting started to spend six months doing this before they just go around just like hanging up. You know, buy this, buy this, buy this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I first thought no one would, no one could sidestep the potholes, even though I'm pointing them out. But I have actually clients now, they're investing five figures with me without having an idea figured out. They have a list of ideas. They have a list of assets and talents, skills, right? A desire to support. They have a general idea of people, but they don't have like, I'm going to do this. And because of that, they're, they're less ego-focused on making that one thing happen. Right. They're more open to what do people need and I will develop something. And I just think to me, it's like, I wish I had that, <laughs> I mean, the year is years of trial and error, you know, I'm figuring this stuff all out, but man, sure. we really could just spend six months and, and learn so much. And even our more seasoned folks who have things that aren't like quite getting off the ground as easily as we think they should. People really need this. Like people don't know they need it. That's part of the, part of the effort here is helping people understand they need something. So, awesome. so and they actually can get the whole resource and all the book and everything, uh, at Robbie forward slash Josh that brings you to the um, page for the book and also to get the toolkit. And for me to know, I can thank Josh for you coming
0: my way. Awesome. We will include a link to that in the the description, RobbieSamuels.com slash Josh. Robbie, if if people wanna get in touch with you or they wanna learn more about you or maybe some of your other services, uh, where do you recommend they go other than that link, of course?
1: Yeah, I'm a pretty multifaceted, uh, passionate entrepreneur. So I do a lot of different things. from business growth strategy work to the virtual event design stuff that we've been talking about and in-person emceeing and all the rest robbysamuels.com is sort of the house of where all those things live i would love to connect with people on linkedin i'm easy to find um you can follow my work on facebook as well twitter instagram i'm robbie samuels on all the platforms uh good branding goes a long <laughs> way um but i would love it and i would love to also see people's reactions like when you share this if someone was watching it i'd love you to comment on these posts and and you know let us know what Mm -hmm. resonated for you and all the things we talked about
0: absolutely absolutely i'll share links to those uh, in the description below robbie thanks again for coming on the show we really appreciate it thanks josh